Have you ever had a friend turn on you? Or worse, a group of friends all at once? The feeling of being abandoned and betrayed by people you loved and trusted can be a serious trauma. What did you do to make them go? Is there anything you could have done to stop them? How can you ever trust anyone again? There is almost nothing worse than being dumped by a bestie. Almost nothing worse. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who has learned very directly what kind of impact my words and actions can have on complete strangers. As a result, I do try to be careful, but honestly, I am a salty-mouthed rapscallion who often can't keep my rancor to myself. And I know that I offend at least one person per episode, but I can't be held responsible for whatever action the offended might take because of said offense. We can't control how people will react to everything we do and say. For Eric Knudsen, there was no way he could have known that a harmless internet challenge would end up in a horrific tragedy for three young girls he never met. A warning before we continue, strangers, this episode involves brutal violence among children, as well as a reference to suicide. Please take care while listening. If this kind of topic isn't your bag, I might suggest heading over to our Patreon page where for five bucks you can get all kinds of content that is less sad and violent. Although some of it is sad because, well, the world. Like the case of Joyce Carol Vincent, who died alone and forgotten, surrounded by Christmas presents that must have been meant for someone. Or cantankerous ghost children. Or treasure hunts. And for just another two bucks, you get all that, plus all our regular episodes ad-free. So join us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash strange and unexplained. When I was 14 or 15, my two closest friends turned on me suddenly. I had no idea why. It seemed like one day we were all having a great time together, and the next I was shunned from the group. It was incredibly painful, and something that took decades to get over. But it turns out I was lucky to have only been excluded. For Peyton Isabel Lautner, when her best friends Morgan Geyser and Anna Weir turned on her, she suffered a far worse fate than I had. On Friday, May 31st of 2014, the three girls were celebrating Morgan's 12th birthday at a local rolling rink in their small town of Waukesha, Wisconsin. Peyton, Morgan, and Anissa shared a love of fantasy and science fiction, scary stories, and video games. These interests didn't afford them much social status at school, and the three were outcasts, a fact that probably solidified their bond. They didn't have many other friends. For Anissa, Morgan and Peyton were her only friends. The trio ended the night at Morgan's house, where they all shared a twin loft bed. The next morning, before breakfast, the girls did some LARPing and generally palled around. Later, Morgan asked her mom if the girls could walk to a nearby park. To Morgan's mother, I'm sure nothing seemed amiss. The girls were having a great time, no drama or tension to speak of, right? 
At the park, Anissa suggested they play hide-and-seek in the woods surrounding the playground. Peyton had no idea that this was all part of a plan that Anissa and Morgan had been plotting out for months. Minutes into the game, only a few feet into the woods, Morgan pulled a steak knife out of the waistband of her pants and stabbed Peyton in the chest. Anissa stood by and watched 12-year-old Morgan Geyser stab Peyton Lautner 19 times. In spite of suffering stab wounds all over her body, miraculously, Peyton was still alive. What could have been going through her mind? I like to think that when something like this happens, when someone is attacked by someone they love and trust, that the part of the brain that processes emotions shuts down and you just go into survival mode. It's already too much to try to do whatever you can to stay alive. In the midst of the devastation that would accompany being attacked in such a brutal way, but then to add on top of that the devastation of knowing it was someone you loved and trusted who attacked you? How could anyone handle that, especially a child? Anyway, hopefully Peyton wasn't trying to understand why her two best friends had turned on her in the worst way imaginable, on top of having to figure out how to save herself. Peyton managed to stand up, at which point Morgan and Anissa led her further into the woods, telling her to lay down while they went to get help, and then ran away. Not long after the girls had left Peyton to die, a man named Greg Steinberg was biking down a path in the park near the woods when he saw Peyton lying in the grass, where she'd somehow miraculously managed to drag herself after her friends left her to die. He told ABC News he didn't think anything was out of the ordinary at first. He thought she might have just been lying out in the sun. I don't know if that means he was extraordinarily unobservant, or if somehow Peyton, having been stabbed 19 times with a 5-inch knife, was not absolutely covered in blood. It wasn't until Peyton called out, Can you help me? I've been stabbed multiple times that Steinberg realized something was wrong. He called the police right away, and Peyton was rushed to Wakesha Memorial Hospital. Meanwhile, back at Peyton's house, Peyton's mother Stacy received a visit from a police officer and a detective with a badge. She told ABC News, They asked me, are you Peyton's mom? The first thing that goes through my mind is my husband and my daughter are both gone. Something has happened to one of them because... That's the only reason a uniformed officer and a detective comes to your house on a Saturday morning. Something has happened to somebody that I loved. I thought about making a joke here about the only thing worse than Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on your door is a police officer and a detective, but I'm too sad. Stacy rushed to the hospital where Peyton was barely hanging on. She was pale as a ghost. She was terrified. She was crying. She couldn't breathe. And I said, you're going to be okay. It's going to be fine. But I could see that she was covered. Her arms, her legs, abdomen, covered in stab wounds. According to Dr. John Kellerman, who operated on Peyton, if the knife had entered just a hair's length deeper, Peyton would have died. He wasn't being hyperbolic. The wounds to Peyton's chest alone were such that her chances of dying were 25 to 50 percent. 
The other dozen or so wounds, of course, only added to the possibility that she might not survive. The surgery took six hours and was very yucky in ways that I don't want to get into because this is already too gruesome and horrible. While doctors worked to save Peyton's life, police were out looking for Morgan and Anissa. According to a piece by Alex Marr from the Virginia Quarterly Review from 2017, a couple of sheriff's deputies found the two girls about five hours later on the grassy shoulder along I-94. Quote, the deputies approach them carefully, aware that they are possible suspects in a stabbing, but confused by their age. One of the men notices blood on Morgan's clothes as he handcuffs her. When he asks her if she's been injured, she says no. End quote. The deputies were confused? I'm confused about their confusion. Shouldn't they have known the suspects in the stabbing were 12-year-olds? And why were they handcuffing them before they knew who they were, what they'd done? Anyway, when the deputies asked where the blood came from, Morgan said, I was forced to stab my friend. Later, while the girls were being questioned, they both revealed that they'd intended to kill their best friend Peyton as a sacrifice to Slenderman. So, what were you all up to in 2009, strangers? As for me, I don't really remember what I was doing in the summer of 2009 except pining for the guy who'd broken up with me because I didn't know how to do polyamory properly and he didn't want to be some guy on the side. That guy was the guy I'm now married to, so everything worked out. Anyway, my point is, I don't really know what I was doing in 2009, but I was definitely not paying attention to the website Something Awful, where on June 10th of that year, 30-year-old elementary teacher Eric Knudsen, posting as Victor Surge, posted a couple of images on a thread called Create Paranormal Images. It was a sort of informal nerd challenge to see if people could take existing photos and doctor them to make them show something paranormal. Knudsen had doctored a couple of photos of kids, one from the mid-80s in which children play in a playground. One child stands atop a slide, and one stands at the bottom of the slide ladder, both looking at the camera and smiling. In the background, other kids play, seemingly unaware of the camera. In the shade of a large tree stands a tall, thin figure with really long, curving fingers. The figure is far enough away and in shadow enough that you can't discern any features. There are four children standing near him as a couple of others are walking away from the figure toward the camera. The caption reads, quote, One of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze notable for being taken the day which 14 children vanished and for what is referred to as, quote, the Slender Man. Deformity cited as film defects by officials. Fire at the library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. 1986, photographer Mary Thomas, missing since June 13, 1986, end quote. The second photograph shows a collection of teenagers apparently walking up a road past the camera in which, again, a dark, tall figure lurks in the shadows. Frankly, I can't really see the figure much at all. I can see a white blur that looks a bit like a warped bowling pin. I guess that's supposed to be the Slender Man? To me, what's more noticeable are the three kids closest to the camera. 
there are two slightly further behind. One is leaning in and saying something to the other, and the one closest to the camera is looking directly into the camera with a look that seems to be saying, I swear to God, if Janice and Scott are talking about me back there, I'm going to shit in her shoes and flush his retainer down the goddamn toilet. If there's anything to be scared of in that photo, it's definitely whatever is on that kid's mind. They do not look pleased. Anyway, the caption offered in connection to this photo was... Quote, we didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill them. But its persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. End quote. Very quickly after Knudsen posted these two photos, the online community began developing a backstory for the Slender Man. According to a piece in Newsweek from 2014, Quote, through discussions and more photoshopped images and stories, other forum visitors solidified the features of the character known as Slenderman. His facelessness was nearly constant. He typically wore a black suit, and he sometimes had tentacles growing out of his back. There was some consensus that he abducted children and that deaths commonly involving mutilation would follow. Over the next several years, stories of the monster spread at an exponential rate, mainly through alternative reality games, online texts and videos created by fans feeding off the narratives of other users in real time, creating a networked narrative that blurs the lines between reality and fiction. And as the story spread, it quickly lost its point of origin, becoming instead the creative nexus for hundreds of thousands of users of a dark, sprawling, real-time fairy tale. A sort of fourth world, end quote. Less than a month after Knudsen posted the two photos, University of Alabama film student Troy Wagner and his friend Joseph DeLage published a web series called Marble Hornets that purports to be found footage, a la the Blair Witch Project, about a guy who's being stalked by the Slender Man. I tried watching it, but, uh, I didn't really want to. Apparently, film critic Roger Ebert tweeted about the series, so I guess it's considered good, but there's like 7,000 episodes, and honestly, who has time? According to a piece in the New York Times, quote, In the year after Slenderman was introduced, there were more web series, many with alternate reality game elements, an untold number of stories, blogs, poems, and drawings, and discussions on other websites, including Unfiction, Geared to Gamers, Creepy Pasta Wiki, horror fans, and 4chan, everything from conspiracy theorists to cat lovers, end quote. The popularity of the Slender Man cannot be overstated. There were hundreds of doctored photos, video games, clips of people supposedly being hunted by Slender Man, reaction videos of people watching these clips and watching people play the video games. According to Alex Marr at the Virginia Quarterly Review, quote, for Slender's hundreds of thousands of online devotees, he was a trip, a monster they were crowdsourcing in real time. His many, many fans and co-creators were mostly college-age guys or guys in their early 20s, people with a lot of time to devote to the unreal, end quote. By 2014, Slenderman had made its way to the website Creepypasta Wiki, a website started in 2010 devoted to all things horror. 
This is where, in early 2014, Morgan and Anissa came across the character. But unlike the swarms of young men in basements all across the world, these two young girls truly thought Slender Man was real. If you've ever seen the movie Heavenly Creatures, you'll absolutely recognize the chain of events that followed. And quick side note, if you haven't seen Heavenly Creatures, stop what you're doing immediately and watch it. Go now. Actually, wait until this episode is done and then go watch it. Oh my God, seminal queer identity movie for little Daisy. Anyway, no spoilers, but in Heavenly Creatures, two girls create a rich fantasy life in which they become dangerously attached to each other, leading to disastrous consequences. In 2014, Morgan and Anissa were like real-world Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky, the stars of that film, getting drawn in by a fictional character, albeit one they thought was real, and creating a tight, toxic bond around him. But Morgan and Anissa's friendship was actually much newer than Morgan and Peyton's friendship. Peyton and Morgan had known each other for years and had been inseparable. According to the interviews Peyton's parents gave to NBC News, the two girls would spend all day together at school and then immediately get on the phone when they got home and spend hours talking and messaging each other online. As the girls became tweens, Peyton's mother was getting a little worried about how controlling Morgan could be. She said Morgan and Peyton would have arguments that Peyton would be really upset over. But Peyton's dad said it seemed like a typical friendship between two preteen girls. Anissa came into the picture earlier that year when she transferred into their school after her parents divorced. Peyton's mother said Peyton had only mentioned Anissa a couple of times. But once they'd found Slender Man, Morgan and Anissa's friendship grew. In her piece for the Virginia Quarterly Review, Marr wrote that because Anissa was new to the school and experiencing a lot of bullying, her friendship with Morgan was extremely important. This shared fantasy world helped strengthen their bond. Eventually, the girls were claiming to have seen Slender Man out in the real world on various occasions, with Morgan claiming to have seen him years earlier when she was only five. According to Marr, quote, The girls told each other they could see Slender and hear Slender, and in her notebooks, Morgan drew the images of the faceless man again and again, end quote. Morgan's notebooks became filled with images of Slender Man. As Marr at the Virginia Quarterly Review described it, quote, a head portrait in pencil of a man in a dark suit and tie. His long neck is white, and so is his face, bald and whited out with hollows where his eyes should be. Here is another, an androgynous kid, a girl like the artist, in a sweatshirt and flared jeans leaping across the page. She has huge, glassy black eyes and dark, stringy hair. She reaches out with one hand and brandishes a dagger in the other. Filling the page around her, tiny rainbows and clouds and stars and hearts, all the signatures of the little girl the artist recently was, burst in a fireworks display. There are cryptic messages, too. A page covered in X's, another inscribed, He Still Sees You. Morgan Geyser's drawings of Slender Man veer from stark, repetitive images evoking a phantom, a page covered in his symbol X, a blank face with X's for eyes, to the increasingly particular. 
In one pencil sketch, a girl with kitty cat ears and tail lies on the ground, eyes closed, a skull floating above her head. Looming over her is another humanoid kitty girl who looks straight at the viewer, a scythe in one hand. The speech bubble above her head reads, I love killing people. And in the most elaborate image, a slim, bald, and faceless figure towers over a row of children. Enormous, octopoid tentacles emerge from his back, like long black fingers. Above this slender creature's head is written a message as if to the artist herself, You are strange, child. It will be of my use. End quote. Morgan's drawings became increasingly intimate. As Marr described it, quote, a long-haired kid in a bloody sweatshirt looks as if she has thrown her arms around the neck of Slenderman, who embraces her in return. She is crying. His reddened cheeks are either bloodied or blushing. The two appear to be close, intimate. They are, perhaps, comforting each other, end quote. Peyton, for her part, was not having the Slenderman stuff. Her imagination and fantasy life tended towards unicorns, elves, and rainbows, not murderous figures with no face. But Morgan and Anissa's shared obsession only grew and soon turned into a shared delusion through which they convinced themselves that they had to kill someone in order to prove their devotion to Slenderman, to show the world that he was real. Peyton, who seemed to be pulling away around this time, probably struck them as the perfect target. At any rate, according to the piece in Newsweek, quote, In February, the girls decided to carry out their act on May 30th, the night Geyser planned to celebrate her 12th birthday. In the intervening months, Geyser and Weir whispered about their plan, sometimes while riding the bus often using code words like camping trip to refer to the Nicolette National Forest in Wisconsin's North Woods, where they believed Slenderman lived, end quote. After Morgan and Anissa were picked up on the side of the highway and brought in for questioning, which apparently was done without their parents there, they explained their motivation for attempting to kill Peyton. I wonder if they felt more scared or disappointed once they'd learned they'd failed to do the job correctly. Once they'd proven themselves to Slenderman, they said they were going to walk into Wisconsin's Nicolette National Forest, almost 200 miles north, where he would welcome them with open arms. Very long, skinny open arms with weird tentacles for fingers. And remember, when the police found them five hours after the murder, they were only one mile away. At that rate, they would have reached their destination more than a month later. But I think it's safe to say, at this point, these children hadn't really thought any of this through properly. They were children, after all. Children with very active, colorful, and dark imaginations. Morgan had apparently convinced Anissa that if they didn't go through with it, Slenderman would kill their loved ones. Anissa told police, I believe it's ending a life, and I regret it. The bad part of me wanted her to die. The good part of me wanted her to live. Morgan was a little less ambivalent. She told police she thought it was necessary to kill Peyton, although she did say she was sorry and also said, It was weird that I didn't feel remorse. According to a piece in New York Magazine, under questioning, Anissa seemed distraught. 
She seemed to have figured out by then that she'd been lured into believing in a fictional character that she said was made up by... Teenagers who really like scaring people and making them believe false things. She claimed that Morgan did all the stabbing because she herself was too squeamish. Morgan, on the other hand, didn't show much emotion at all. According to the New York Magazine piece, quote, Morgan blames the whole thing on Anissa. Anissa told her to do it. Anissa made it seem necessary. She can't remember exactly who held the knife. Of the two, Morgan was much more in the grip of the mythical power of Slenderman. Morgan pulls her bare arms inside her giant shirt. Sometimes she tucks her whole head in there, too. At one point, she asks if she'll rot in jail. At another, she says, Please don't cut off my head. Morgan is also hostile. Stabby, stab, stab, stab. Probably the most quoted phrase in the Slenderman canon is prompted by her growing annoyance with the detective who gently but firmly keeps asking her to describe the moment of violence again. Are you trying to do this over and over again to see if I tell the story differently? And then... I have the right not to go into detail about it if I don't want to. End quote. Both Morgan and Anissa were charged with attempted first-degree murder. They were charged as adults. Both girls pled not guilty by reason of mental defect or illness. Despite claiming mental illness, however, it seems Morgan didn't receive any kind of proper diagnosis or treatment until months later when she was transferred to a psychiatric facility where she was diagnosed with early-onset schizophrenia. Her mother said that over the summer, in juvenile detention and without treatment, Morgan had become, quote, floridly psychotic, end quote. According to Alex Marr, quote, she continued to have conversations with Slenderman, as well as characters from the Harry Potter series. At one point, she claimed that Severus Snape kept her up until 3 a.m. She saw unicorns. She treated the ants in her cell like pets, end quote. Despite all this, the judge deemed Morgan mentally competent to stand trial, and because of that, she couldn't stay at the psychiatric facility. So this child, with a pretty obvious and dangerous disease, wasn't able to get treatment because a judge said so. Cool system, bro. Apparently, Morgan had been showing signs of schizophrenia as early as age three, with different hallucinations and magical beliefs continuing throughout her childhood. One wonders, then, why she hadn't been diagnosed or treated before this nightmare unfolded. Sure, it can be easy to miss the signs of mental illness, especially in someone so young. You can chalk their delusions up to a vivid, healthy, and active imagination. And sure, maybe her tastes leaned toward the macabre, but that's just how some kids are. There's nothing wrong with being into horror and gore, unless you have a serious mental illness that sometimes prevents you from differentiating truth and fiction. But really, who could have known that Morgan might have had schizophrenia? Well, as it turns out, her parents could have known, and honestly, should have known. Her father also had schizophrenia. In fact, Morgan's father had also been diagnosed with early-onset schizophrenia when he was only two years older than Morgan was at this point. Apparently, Morgan's parents had decided not to talk to Morgan about her father's illness unless and until she showed any symptoms, which they said she didn't. 
You know, aside from hearing voices, believing she could touch and feel ghosts, and seeing images pop up on the walls. This makes me livid. You know that Pixar movie, Turning Red? It's about a little girl who, at the age of 13 or 14, suddenly turns into a red panda. It's not a permanent condition. It comes and goes. But she learns she'll be living with it for the rest of her life because, it turns out, every woman in her family has the same affliction and no one ever bothered to tell her about it. I cannot begin to express the rage I felt upon seeing that movie. Obviously, the panda thing is a metaphor for puberty. Remember what happened to Carrie when she got her period for the first time and no one told her what it was? Yeah, there's no excuse for not talking to your kids about the shit that might and or probably definitely will land in their laps before it happens. And even if they didn't want to tell Morgan about her dad's illness, they should have been paying better attention. Jesus, my kid sneezes and I wonder if he needs therapy. I will admit I can be a neurotic basket case, but somewhere between me being a neurotic basket case and Morgan's parents apparently not being neurotic basket cases enough, there has to be some kind of happy, healthy medium. Morgan went without treatment for more than a year and a half when she was finally transferred to a state psychiatric facility where she was finally given treatment for her powerful delusions. Even once those symptoms were under control, though, she tried to cut her arm with a broken pencil and was placed on suicide watch. Alex Marr of the Virginia Quarterly Review wrote that a, quote, powerful narcissism, end quote, was on display during Anissa's interrogation with police. I don't know if that was some kind of official diagnosis Anissa received or simply Marr's opinion. Anissa asked her interrogator how far she and Morgan had walked before they'd been picked up near the freeway because she didn't consider herself very athletic and she would just be interested to know. Mar wrote, quote, She seems very impressed by the challenges they'd faced on their long walk after leaving Peyton. Harping on the distance, the threat of heat exhaustion and mosquitoes, going without an allergy pill all day, and the limited snacks. The granola bar she packed was disgusting. The kudos bar was much better. She recounts with incredible precision everything she and Morgan ate that day, including free treats at a furniture store, a glass of lemonade and two cookies each. Near the end of her interview, she seems about to share a revelation with the detective. I just realized something. What's that? If I don't go to school on Monday, that'll be the first day that I miss of school. End quote. Now, I'm no child psychologist, but I do boast a B.A. in psychology from an extremely laid-back liberal arts school, and these examples don't seem to illustrate powerful narcissism. If anything, they're illustrative of a young girl with an immature understanding of the world. When my mom died, one of my first thoughts was whether the kids at school might be nice to me because they'd feel sorry for me. Is that narcissism, or is that a young mind trying not to look at the awful thing head-on and instead focus on something less awful? Considering how much Anissa had been crying, it's hard to say she was powerfully narcissistic. Then again, as Mar points out, we don't know if she was crying because she felt bad for what she'd done or because she'd been caught and was now in trouble. What Anissa was eventually diagnosed with was a case of folie deux, which I touched on briefly in the Moberly and Jourdain time slip episode. 
It's also possibly what the family who claimed a talking weasel named Jeff lived in their walls suffered from. A folie de is a shared delusion. And while Morgan's delusions got worse while she was in jail, Anissa's belief in Slenderman faded and she came to accept that he wasn't real. Anissa was sentenced to 25 years under state mental care, but could petition for early release and remain under outpatient care until she turned 37. Anissa was released in September 2021, having spent four years in the Winnebago Mental Health Institute in Oshkosh. In the statement she released to the press about why she had petitioned for early release, she acknowledged that she was guilty of the crime, but that in order to become a productive member of society, she needed to be in society. She lives with her father under 24-hour GPS surveillance and undergoes mandatory psychiatric care. Morgan was sentenced to 40 years in a state psychiatric facility with the ability to petition for early release. In August of 2023, Morgan withdrew a petition for early release. Details aren't clear, but it seems like she may have thought she was doing better than she actually was. Her lawyers are hoping she'll be ready for release this year. As for Peyton Lautner, remember when I said I'd hoped she didn't understand what was happening to her while her friends were attacking her? Well, hope springs eternal, as does my naivete. According to Anissa, Peyton was well aware of what was going on during the attack. She apparently screamed, I hate you. I trusted you. So there goes that. The good news is, though, that Peyton seems to be living as normal a life as one can after being nearly murdered by your two best friends. In 2019, Peyton spoke publicly for the first time since the ordeal. She told ABC News... After I heard why she did it, I was like, well, this doesn't surprise me at all. Because she believed so hard in this thing that she would do anything for it. It was a little shocking to me to see that they had this big, huge plan that they had been working on for months. Peyton says she sleeps with a pair of broken scissors under her pillow just in case. And she and her mother agree that she has had a hard time trusting new people. But when asked what she would say to Morgan if she ever had the chance to come face to face with her, Peyton said, I would probably initially thank her. I would say, just because of what she did, I have the life I have now. I really, really like it. And I have a plan. I didn't have a plan when I was 12. And now I do because of everything that I went through. I wouldn't think that someone who went through what I did would ever say that, but that's truly how I feel. Without the whole situation, I wouldn't be who I am. To someone like me, someone who has spent the last 25 years, give or take, rehearsing the searing monologue I would give if I ran into any of the so-called friends who dumped me all those years ago, to hear this young woman be so magnanimous and forgiving to a pair of friends who tried to murder her is almost unbelievable. But the honest truth is, I have seen most of those kids since then, and we all acted as though nothing hurtful had ever happened between us. And even though I still walk around with those emotional scars, I can tell myself that they were only kids, and after all, who can blame a kid for the shitty way they treat their friends? Who knows what kinds of demons my friends back then were fighting? And at the end of the day, all they really did was stop being friends with me. 
which hurt. But I can confidently say it didn't hurt as much as what Peyton Lautner's so-called friends did to her. And while the angel on her shoulder seems to have helped Peyton forgive, I wonder if sometimes, just once in a great while, she catches herself clutching those broken scissors under her pillow and uttering under her breath, Come say sorry to my face. I know I would. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, a man emerges from the woods of Manitoba, Canada with a wild story about strange flying crafts that defy the laws of physics, at least as we here on Earth know them, the Falcon Lake UFO incident. And if you want even more Strange and Unexplained, head over to our Patreon, where you get three bonus episodes a month for just five bucks. And for $7, you get all that, plus all the regular episodes ad-free. Patreon.com slash Strange and Unexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research by Jess McKillop. Editing by Eve Kerrigan, sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Lauren Hooper, Jordan Kai Burnett, and Crystal Simmons. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, head on over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. You can follow us on social media. We are at SNUPod. And check out our Facebook page to join in the conversation. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review and a quick sentence really helps the show out a lot. If you don't like our show, you can leave a terrible review. The name of the podcast is I Am MAGA. 